0: Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 59, Revelation, Tolerating Jezebel. And in this episode, we're going to look at Jesus' words to the church in Thyatira, which is Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And in this week's Unbound Truth is that the influence of Baal can be present even in communities that are faithfully loving, Serving and enduring hardship. And so we're going to take a look at a church that's quite the opposite of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was faithful in their doctrine and their teaching, but had forgotten to love. And the church in Thyatira actually does a pretty good job of loving and serving. And many of their members are even faithfully enduring persecution. But there is a group of believers in this particular church that has begun to get a little lax when it comes to doctrine and teaching, and finding that certain things they don't believe are as important as other believers are making them out to be. And so Jesus needs to address this, and he's going to use an Old Testament um, figurehead known as Jezebel, and we'll look a little bit into that in the Old Testament to get an idea of what he's talking about here. And then we will conclude by focusing in on what it actually looks like for the church to rule over the nations alongside Jesus. So let's jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, as we typically do, allow me just to read Revelation 2 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I have titled this episode, Tolerating Jezebel. And that is because of a comparison that Jesus makes to the church, directly telling them that they tolerate this woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And so um, many times uh, you, you may be familiar with this woman, but this is probably the most infamous woman in the Old Testament is an actual woman named Jezebel. She was, we're told in 1 Kings 16, the daughter of Eth Baal, king of the Sidonians. And she marries um, one of Israel's worst kings or maybe it's uh, he becomes one of Israel's worst kings because he marries her but nonetheless she marries a king named Ahab and Ahab is the leader and the ruler in Israel and ought to be a worshiper and follower of the Lord but marrying into Jezebel's family who are clearly Baal worshipers what you find in this particular Old Testament instance with Jezebel is this temptation toward not knowing whether to choose worshiping the Lord or whether to choose worshiping Baal. And in the the episode number 46, um, Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega, we referred back to a scene in 1 Kings 18 with Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and how we noticed this discrepancy between who really is God and which God you choose to worship dictates the kind of society that you have and so it's actually in that handful of chapters um, 1 Kings 18 being one of them where Jezebel is the queen the prophetess as you will even as it's related to Revelation chapter 2 but I just want to read one little narrative from the Old Testament to give you an idea of the kind of woman that this Jezebel figure was and then for us to be able to try to relate that to the passage in in Revelation 2. So In 1 Kings 21, here's what we read. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you will eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him. And let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Now, this may sound like a rather strange story, but let me give you a little bit of understanding um, to to better be able to grasp what's happening here. Um, Naboth was a faithful Israelite. And in Leviticus 25, the Lord, by way of his provision and protection and love for the people, had told them that when he divided up the, the promised land amongst the people, that they were not to sell that land to anybody else, but were to continually keep it in their own family as a constant physical reminder of the Lord's blessing on that family. Now, Naboth knows this, and I think Ahab knows this too. But Ahab wants the vineyard that Naboth has because it's right next to his palace. He wants to expand his palace. He wants to make a nice garden for it. Um, it's really interesting that in, in Egypt, gardens were often used um, or, or grown beside palaces. And so it, it you wonder if maybe Ahab is wanting to resemble his reign and his rule, similarly to the way Egypt did, but we really don't know. All we know is that as a follower of the Lord, Ahab knows that you don't just steamroll people. You don't just bulldoze them. You're going to have to offer him something for his property. And so he offers him a better vineyard for it, or he offers him money for it. But Naboth is a faithful Israelite and knows that the Lord has promised this vineyard, not just for him, but for his descendants. And so it's really not Naboth's to give up. The Lord owns all of this land, and the Lord has graciously allowed his people to live in it and be stewards of it and to be given personal property in the land. In Baal's economy, though, the king rules everything. The king takes what he wants, when he wants, from whoever he wants. That's how Jezebel grew up. And that's how Jezebel thinks Ahab should rule. But Ahab knows that the Lord wouldn't approve of that type of ruler. And so he offers to buy the vineyard or to give him money or to trade him. And when when Naboth says, no, I won't let you do it. It says that King Ahab laid down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. And what you have here is, is kind of like a glorified royal temper tantrum but Ahab lays down and he's truly stunned about the best way to go about getting what he wants as a but as a follower and leader and king of the lord's economy knowing you can't just steal what you want you've got to do something else with it but the fact is Ahab is married to Jezebel who worships Baal and in Baal's economy taking care of your own needs first is what justice means and you care about everybody else secondly And so Jezebel does something that I think Jesus is going to connect for us here in our um, letter to to the church in Thyatira. And that is by saying that Jezebel says to the leaders of the city, I want you to set a feast. I want you to set Naboth at the head of the table. And I want you to take two worthless men, set them opposite him and have them bring a false report saying, Naboth cursed God and the King. They do it. The two worthless men bring a Bring an accusation against Naboth, and he is eventually stoned and killed. Jezebel goes back to Ahab, tells him that the vineyard is now his for the taking, and he gets up and he takes it. The passage continues with the Lord's very just and um, deserved anger toward Ahab and Jezebel for this um, particular, you know, string of events. But but the bottom line here that I want you to understand for our purposes in the the Revelation chapter two is to see that Jezebel as a follower of Baal actually knows just enough about the law of the Lord to know that nobody could actually be convicted of this false accusation of having cursed God or the King except based upon what Deuteronomy 19 tells them in the law and that is that on the evidence and on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Now what's interesting, is Jezebel actually taps into that part of the law, guaranteeing that she has at least two witnesses who will bring a false charge against Naboth in order to break another part of the law, which is that this land is not to be sold outside of your own family. And so Jezebel does something that's really, really, really shady, and yet something that Jesus is cluing us in on can actually still happen today, and that is that, that followers of Jesus or followers of, of the Lord or whoever can actually obey certain aspects of his law, certain guidelines that he gives us, expectations that he has for us, commands that he has for us, while ignoring and directly breaking other aspects of that same law. And Jezebel was the queen of this. Jezebel threatened to kill Elijah when Elijah had defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and Elijah runs for his life from this woman, she is the embodiment, the symbolic embodiment of idolatry toward Baal worship in the Old Testament. She is going to be used throughout the book of Revelation actually as well to be referred to as a, um, as a prostitute. As a woman whose ways are sneaky, power hungry, using her privilege and her status to get what she wants no matter who has to suffer. And in the church to Thyatira, being a trade guild city, meaning that there were where there were lots of items that were either mined or manufactured in Thyatira. We're told that when Paul is traveling through Asia Minor, he comes upon a place of Thyatira, he meets a woman named Lydia, who is a worker in purple linens, and he shares the gospel with her, and the Lord opens her heart to receive the gospel. And so, we know that for someone like Lydia, who works in purple linens, she's probably making garments somehow for the royal family. Well, that might have been one of the trade guilds in Thyatira. There was another trade guild of the makers of a really, really fine bronze, which I find it ironic, maybe, maybe not, that Jesus refers to himself as the one who has the feet of burnished bronze because Jesus is actually the true maker and and, and the one who truly knows um, where these resources come from and how they are made and shows himself as being the one who walks among these churches, who sees the good things that they do. As I shared in the introduction, this church loves faithfully they serve faithfully they are some of them enduring opposition and persecution faithfully but they are looking at various aspects of their communal life and in Thyatira it's important for you to know as many of the other cities in Rome at this time around this this area would have had these various trade guilds that they would have been a part of People would gather around if you worked in one of these trade guilds, making linens, making cloth, making dyes, making bronze. They would have also recognized that there would be a particular god that would be assigned to one of those trade guilds. And when you gathered around for social events, for work-related events, for gatherings of worship, which would sometimes be always combined into the same social atmosphere... If you wanted to maintain your job, if you wanted to maintain competitive wages, if you wanted to maintain a competitive, um, you know, spot in the market, you not only attended these social events, but you also participated in whatever type of sexual immorality took place at these events in in order to please the gods or to impress the gods. And it seems that what is happening in some of these churches is that there were certain views held by some of the members, some of these people that tolerate this woman Jezebel. And I think in Revelation, I do not think this is an actual woman as much as referring back to this is the spirit of a particular woman who throughout Revelation will be referred to as this one who rides on the back of the beast and is drunk with the blood of the saints. It is someone whose injustice and cruelty and power-hungry manipulation is constantly at work in the world to further one's own agenda. That's Jezebel. Those are her children. Those are the people who follow her. Those are the people that Jesus said he will throw onto a sickbed. And the reason why he is confronting this in the church is because when you talk about the witness to Jesus, loving him and loving others, serving him and serving others, faithfully witnessing to Jesus, those things are absolutely necessary. But if at any point you begin to wrestle through some of the issues that I think Christians in in Corinth wrestled through that Paul had to address in some of his letters, and that is recognizing that even though idols we don't believe are real, it's tempting for some Christians, and I think in the days of Revelation, this was tempting as well to say, hey, because we know that these gods aren't real, because we know that these are just social things that people do, because these are just things, it really doesn't affect our faith. I mean, our faith is this invisible thing, it's a spiritual thing, it's a mental thing. God will understand that, you know, we still have to live. We still have to make a living. We still have to participate in various activities that are going on in the public realm. If we stand up and say we don't believe in your gods or we don't believe in these practices, what's going to happen to our business? What's going to happen to our way of life? What's going to happen to our economic status? What's going to happen to our financial situation? It's okay guys. Jesus understands you still got to make a living. You still got to do some things that you might not otherwise, you know, really want to do. It's okay. That's the teaching of Jezebel. That's the teaching that says you can approach the law of God and take bits and pieces of it that suit your agenda and drop other issues that don't suit your agenda. And Jesus is addressing here for the for the first time, but it will not be the last, the very very strong temptation there is to settle on some aspects of the law that you think if you really showed your conviction about those things you would certainly face some level of persecution whether it's social or financial or economic and jesus is saying you are walking into a trap Because the very things that are unjust that drove Jezebel to treat Naboth the way she did, those very things are going to be judged when the great Babylon is judged in the end. I do not want you to be sucked in. But you need to be aware of the fact that the way this spirit is at work in the church, it's not enough to say, well, it's okay. We're loving, we're serving, we treat people kindly. But you know what? We're going to back off a little bit on some of these more particular points of of doctrine because we don't want to receive the persecution that's going to come as a result. And so as we looked at in our episode 46, when we compared Baal with the Lord, and then as the one we looked at a few weeks ago where we talked about he who has an ear, let him hear. And we looked at the fact that is, are we worshiping a God of strength or are we worshiping a God who uses his strength to come to the aid of, Of the week, which God are we serving? Does Jesus serve in a power over way? Does he serve in a power under way? And so I want to repeat our unbound truth for this week, and that is simply that the influence of Baal and the power over kingdom can be present even in communities that are faithfully loving, serving, and enduring hardship. And so the call to be faithful witnesses is that you are faithful to everything that Jesus lays out. And that you don't cut corners anywhere, wherever that may be in your life. You don't cut corners because Jesus wants a faithful representation to the truth. And the faithful representation to the truth isn't just that you live faithfully to the truth, but that you come to those in your midst who aren't living faithfully, and you offer them the opportunity to repent. Verses 26 to 29 of Revelation 2 um, conclude the letter to this church in this way. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Once again, as is evidenced in all seven of these churches, what they receive is a, an encouragement and an exhortation to conquer or to overcome or to be victorious. And the one here in this situation is going to be the one who is able to point out the false teaching that is going on within the church in the spirit of Jezebel, this manipulative, power-hungry, controlling spirit that needs to be properly dealt with called for what it is and then repented of. And for those who either call others to repent of that and are found to be faithful in their ability to do this until the end, Jesus says that he will grant them authority to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, in Psalm chapter two, um, Jesus is actually spoken of. It's it's the Messiah, but we, we eventually find out that this is referring to Jesus himself as someone who will rule with a rod of iron. And it is in Psalm two, the few verses right before that, where we get this reference to the son of God. Again, the, the king, the Messiah, being oftentimes referred to as the son of God. And this is the way that Jesus addresses the church in Thyatira. It says the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And Jesus's eyes like a flame of fire are those who see into these manipulative, backhanded, power hungry ways. Nothing catches Jesus by surprise. He sees those things that are done in hidden places and in the secret places. But he addresses this church by the phrase, the Son of God, which interestingly enough doesn't even appear in Revelation 1 like so many of the other attributes of Jesus that we've been referring to throughout the book so far. But I do think it's because it's referencing it from Psalm chapter 2, which again is this place where the Son of God, the King, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so we have this ruling the nations with a rod of iron, ruling we've seen this before we've looked at this all through the podcast but in most in particular in episode 5 made in the image of god what does it mean to have dominion over the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and over every living thing that creeps on the ground um what we know is that the beast himself conquers by by causing his enemies to fear him and then by killing them well what we're going to find out as we work our way through the book of Revelation is that the Lamb conquers his enemies by loving them and dying for them. And so what I want us to do, as I challenged you to do in the sermon that I posted as episode 49, "How do you read the Law?" is for us to take just a moment to consider what does it mean to suggest that believers will rule the nations with a rod of iron? What does that mean? And in Daniel chapter two, there's a, a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and and Daniel interprets it, and it it has this statue of multiple, you know, bronze and iron and clay and gold and all of these different different parts. And what we come to understand through through history is to recognize that the part of the statue made of iron mixed with clay was um, oftentimes believed to be a reference to Rome itself. And so, you know, Rome is often equated with iron, and the idea that you and I probably have in our minds when someone says, rule with a rod of iron, it nearly always signifies harsh, dictatorial rule. And so the question I want to pose is, will Jesus really rule in a harsh, dictatorial way and invite his followers into that with him? Um, We looked at this in a handful of episodes back, uh, uh, primarily in episode 50, the, the sharp two-edged sword. But in Isaiah 11, we are given another promise of a coming Messiah. And here's what it says about him. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Now we looked at this when it comes time to talk about Jesus wielding a sword and that the fact that Jesus' sword is wielded with his mouth. And I don't think we're to picture, as I heard, as I heard one, one podcaster say recently, that it's not as if Jesus has a large sword in his mouth that he's gritting, gritting with his te- gripping with his teeth and then he swings his head around and is, is slaying his enemies. You know, that would, would give him a, a neck ache and, and, and probably a host of other problems. That's not the idea. The idea is that the words he speaks judge the people with the sword. And here in Isaiah 11 it says he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. So you've got a rod and a sword, both of which we imagine are going to be held in the hands of a harsh dictatorial ruler, but in Isaiah 11 the image we get is that Jesus's words coming out of his mouth are both swords and rods. And we get further implications of this in 1 Corinthians 4 when Paul says the kingdom of God is not in word but in power what do you want Corinthians shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness now there's the word rod and I think that what Paul is saying is do you want me to come to you and be harsh and dictatorial with you or do you want me to be loving and gentle now where does Paul get the idea of coming to the corinthians in a spirit of gentleness and love well are not love and gentleness two of the nine characteristics of the fruit of the spirit sure they are the same spirit of the lord that describes the messiah from isaiah chapter 11 the seven spirits who are before his throne and we looked at this again in episode 50 and so i won't go back into more detail about that that right now but in Psalm 2, and Psalm 23, in Psalm 89, rods are used for discipline or punishment, chastisement, and wrath. But even in Psalm 23, where David is able to say, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, shepherds don't hate their sheep. They don't beat them over the head because they find enjoyment out of that. They are leading the sheep out of danger into straight paths And David says to the Lord in Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They don't afflict me. They don't make me angry. They comfort me because I know you care enough about me to get in my way when I'm heading down the wrong path and steer me back the right way. Again, David doesn't envision here God beating him over the head. He envisions him clinging to his words that he's given to him to keep David on the straight and narrow path. And so what I want to pose here is when Jesus is saying to the one who conquers, I will give authority to rule the nations. What does ruling and having authority look like in Jesus' life? Because here's the phrase that he uses at the end of this section. He says, he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So what does it mean to rule well? What does it mean to have authority? Well, that's a Genesis 1 question. And we posed this way back at the beginning of the podcast. What does Jesus do with his authority? Didn't Satan himself tempt Jesus to use his authority to provide for himself, draw attention to himself, and glorify himself? And Jesus refused the offer at every opportunity. Because his authority was to do the will of him who sent him to honor his father. So you see, concepts like rule and authority take on entirely new meanings in the person of Jesus. In fact, I'll repeat, was it not the failure to recognize this fact that led many people to reject him when he came, or at the least to think he really wasn't the Messiah at all, after all, after watching the way he suffered and died. And so for us, the challenge is not to allow Rome's definition of rule and authority to be given place in our thinking about how Jesus and his followers will one day rule and exercise authority. And the reason I'm bringing that up here, and I, I brought this up again at the, towards the end of episode 50, but I will repeat myself here. It bothers me when I listen to some followers of Jesus speak about the way how in the end, We were pushed down now, but in the end, we're going to get what's rightfully ours. We're going to be able to rule over those terrorists, or we're going to be able to rule over those scum of the earth. And Christians almost taking glee at the thought that we will be able to rule over them in the same harsh way that people today are ruling over Christians. But we are not Rome. And we will not pick up Rome's ideology in order to defeat Rome. Satan cannot drive out Satan and Jesus will never adopt his ways in order to try. You see, Jezebel rules like Baal. She pushes her way around. She manipulates people. She bulldozes people out of her way when they do not meet her expectations. And we looked at how Baal does this in episode 46. But Jesus in no way rules the nations like Baal. In fact, in this very letter, he rebukes this church for tolerating Jezebel and her wicked ways. So there is no way that in the end, he's going to say, okay, now you've faithfully endured by letting you know, crap happen to you. Now it's your chance to dish out the crap. That's not the image in the end of the book of Revelation. We have the tree of life in the garden, in the middle of the garden, and the leaves on that tree are for the healing of the nations. This is a rod. That's much similar to Psalm 23, we are to be using and wielding for the comfort of the nations. Having gates that are never shut by day, there is no night there, and that we are always inviting in the nations to participate in the glories that will be the heavenly temple with God, with the Lamb, and with all of His followers. This is the invitation. So to rule the nations with a rod of iron is more, I believe, similar to the way David refers to the rod in Psalm 23, the way Isaiah speaks of Jesus ruling with the rod of his mouth, with the sword of his mouth, because Jesus has already dealt with discipline and punishment and, and, and judgment. He dealt with that on the cross. And he's completely given new meaning and new shape to all of these images for his own people. And so what does it mean to rule? Well, we looked at that in episode five. Does Jesus rule in a power over way or a power under way? And when we looked in episode 53, he who has an ear, we talked more about that as well. And then finally, it, just to remind you again of the episode number 28, Rebuking the Mighty Waters. It was a sermon that I preached, which I felt was helpful for us to be able to address. Does Jesus expect to come one day and rebuke the nations? Wipe the nations off the map? Or does he come to rebuke the nations roaring? And the... Op, the. Uh, the, the conclusion I offered to you in that sermon was that he is coming to rebuke their roaring. He does not want to destroy people. He does not want to hand over harsh dictatorial rule to anyone. Jesus rules in a counterproductive, counterproductive, that's the wrong word, counterintuitive way. His kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God is not a religious version of the kingdom of this world, but it is something vastly different vastly different. And for those who can recognize that despite all the good that some churches do, their temptation to manipulate things for their own advantage, or to skirt around persecution to make sure that they don't experience it in any way, Jesus is calling those believers to repentance. And he's calling his other faithful followers who recognize the presence of this happening in other places to call those believers to repentance. And he's doing it because he knows this is training grounds for what will one day be an opportunity for us to comfortingly and courageously invite the nations into the presence of God. And Jesus is giving us the chance now to to practice, to learn how to do that and how to do it more effectively by calling people to repentance when they actually need it. And so for one last time, the, the week's unbound truth is that the influence of Baal can be present even in communities that are faithfully loving, serving, and enduring hardship. And so for you this week, I would like you to take some time to consider, is there an influence of Baal or a spirit of Jezebel who wants to manipulate things to personally you know, give you an advantage these are real issues. These are real concerns that Jesus wants to address. And he wants us all to have the ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's all the time we're going to take for this week's episode of the podcast. It's just been really encouraging week. This past week, I got a new supporter Um, for the podcast, as well as a new rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and so that's always encouraging to know that there are more people who are listening in and and are encouraged by what's going on. As always, if you have questions or comments or thoughts about future episodes, feel free to email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com, and if you do have a chance to give me a rating or a review on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these on, that would be fantastic. Thanks a lot for your support just from a distance and just for tuning in. Talk to you next week.